Hello and welcome to Archaeology Southeast Digs Deeper. Today's guest is Dominic Perring, who is Director of Archaeology Southeast and the Centre of Applied Archaeology. He's also a Professorial Research Associate at the UCL Institute of Archaeology. Dominic, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, so as our director, I'm, I'm really excited to have a really great discussion with you about archaeology um, and especially the topic of your new book, of course, London in the Roman World. But before we get along to that, we'll start off as we do with all our guests. Uh, tell us about your archaeological background. Oh, I, I, I wasn't quite born an archaeologist, but it was in my blood so early that I can't really remember anymore. I certainly knew I was going to be an archaeologist before I'd left primary school. It was mm -hmm. it was exploring and fun and and old things and stories yeah what was your career path to kind of become the director of our company you know <laughs> well i i was lucky in that i was born quite a long time ago and so mm -hmm. it was very easy then a days to volunteer so i actually started digging in 1968 uh mm -hmm. where i was a schoolboy volunteer for a couple of days at, at corbridge uh, and then I started digging properly in Winchester with Martin Biddle in the 70s uh, and was a supervisor before I came to university. So, so when I came to, to the Institute, which is where I did my first degree, I already knew what kind of archaeologist I was and which direction I was going in. So I did a degree, went straight out into the commercial world, as was then developing. It wasn't called commercial then, it was called rescue archaeology. And I loved the sense of rescue, the, the adventure, the the seizing things from the jaws of the bulldozer it felt mm -hmm. like a, a noble effort uh, rather than a business um, and that, that career path stuck with me it was urban uh, rescue archaeology and I, I dug in Winchester I dug in Lincoln I joined the Museum of London hence this book which just comes out of the, mm -hmm. my the days working in London's archaeology and then I went a, a, a bit you know, international and, and did projects in Milan and Beirut and, and those sorts of things uh, and then kept on moving. I, 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 this is the only job I've been in for more than five years. Most of the jobs I used to have was just for a couple. But I, I've stuck here because it's been rather good fun. Mm. It's really interesting that you'd had a lot of, archaeo a lot of archaeological experience before you arrived at university. Because I think perhaps nowadays, and certainly with my own experience, that wasn't the case at all. University was pretty much the, my first opportunity to to really get to grips with archaeology. I'd done a few museum stints with Killian Roman Museum, actually. Big shout out to them because they're amazing. Um, but yeah. I, it is difficult. I think I mean, we as a profession need to refresh and discover better ways, better pathways for people to be involved in what we do because it is fun, but it, 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 it is much harder. I mean, you know, things like health and safety make it harder, of course, because when I was allowed to dig on archaeological sites, uh, if you fell down a hole, it was your own fault. And, and mm. uh, we, we now have to be a bit more careful of people. And, th and there's sense to that. So I, I don't object to the health and safety. I think it's very necessary. But at the same time, we've got to find ways of, of not letting that be a barrier to people participating. Absolutely. Uh, how did you kind of settle upon Roman archaeology as your kind of main interest? Because the digging was a city digging, uh, many of the, the, the sites I worked on early doors had either Saxon or Roman archaeology, and I, I loved stratigraphy, I loved the complexity of it. But I also had these school trips I'd been on where we went to Hadrian's Wall. Mm. And of course, a school trip took me to the Temple of Mithras and the sites in Roman London. 
Roman archaeology is very accessible. You, you see the mosaics, you see the hypercourse, um, family holidays, visiting France, seeing uh, Roman streets in Vaison-la-Romaine mm. and those sorts of sites. Mm. Uh, and, and also they, it talks to the stories. I, I started reading, you know, Rosemary Sutcliffe's The Eagle of the North and those sorts of things. And they talked of... of fun and interest and, and adventure adventure and Greek myths and legends and the stories of ancient Rome so it's a combination of both the history the novels that get written from it yeah I Claudius those sorts of things Robert Graves mm. there's a lot of thing a lot of different pathways took me into it and then I'm a townie I'm from London and the idea of you know to dig holes in in deep stratigraphy with with mosaics and things in in, in the midst of it was too much fun to resist mm -hmm, definitely i think the like the, the question of what did the romans do for us you know the classic question is is leave a lot of stuff behind to inspire <laughs> yeah. us to be interested in them <laughs> very definitely and sometimes shiny stuff and sometimes mm. pretty stuff but of course the question you ask uh, getting to my book in a minute it, i started thinking that the romans were part of this wonderful mediterranean world the words civilization would, would, mm. would trip, the creation of the towns we live in. And so I did start with this very positive view of the ancient world. And I have to say, the longer I've studied it, the more I've realised that they were pretty brutal. I mean, it, it's an awful lot of, 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 of conquest and colonialism mm. and slavery and uh, people lots of people died making Rome yeah. a successful empire. So so I've kind of ended up thinking that what the Romans did for us was probably not as sweet as, as one might imagine. It's not right. all it's not all drains and roads, quite a bit of it's unpleasant. Yes, exactly. So let's move on to your book. So it's called London in the Roman World. Uh, maybe you could give us a, a brief sort of overview of, of what you do in the book and, and tell us why you decided to write it. Why now? As I've already said, I did quite a bit of digging in London early on mm. in my career. And you find things that continue to puzzle. And as people find other stuff, it gets even more puzzling. And I just felt I needed to pull together all of the threads of things that I've been kind of tracking all the way through my career. Uh, I, I was asked to write, write a review for, for the Journal of Roman Archaeology about some recent Museum of London publications. And I that review of, of a few hundred words over 10 years converted itself into a book of 150,000 words because <laughs> it's, it's not that they'd got it wrong. They were doing exciting things, but just not drawing all the threads together. So you can see each excavation is an exciting adventure in its own right. But the chance to see how they amount to something bigger by being lots of them and talking to each other uh, was just too, too I I interesting to resist. Mm. But unfortunately, rather difficult to achieve because people dig lots of holes and reading yeah. all of their reports takes a lots of time. Right. And and making those kinds of connections is, is slightly beyond the scope of the individual work for each yeah. project, you know. The the big it's not a failure of commercial archaeology, because commercial archaeology does what it does very well. But what it is unable to do is see beyond the horizon 
and and paint bigger pictures because the client you're working for has a budget and that budget's usually driven by sorting out their problems not not thinking wider bigger thoughts so there is a really important role to be done in pulling those threads together and you know people like Richard Bradley have been doing fantastic work on the prehistoric materials uh, mm. there's some, been some very good recent funded projects of drawing together all of the Roman rural excavation sites uh, 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 with Mike Fulford and, and, and Cotswolds archaeology and so there are some really good things going on but but there's you, you can't have too many of them you, you there's mm. always space to be drawing together different threads from these different commercial exercises and and the book i've written is very much the london centric approach to the same because of all of the questions i had left in my mind from having dug there mm, definitely so perhaps you could draw together in a nice uh, nice package for me and for all our listeners like me who aren't specifically Roman archaeologists, kind of what Roman London is, you know, like the story of Roman London. I'm only going to answer that question in part because the story right. takes a lot of pages <laughs> in the book. I've done other podcasts about the story and I, I don't want to get too trapped in it, but it is about being able to write narrative with detail. And the real excitement about Roman London is our ability to date major change. And it's a consequence of having up to nine metres of stratigraphy. It's a consequence of having had uh, over a thousand, probably more than 2,000 different excavations conducted in the area. And then it is the wonder that is dendrochronology. And I am now obsessed by tree ring dating. <laughs> um, and the trick with a city like London is, because it's a big place, it, it, it doesn't have lots of, of wood floating around on the edges. It, it needs to import its building timber. And it imports timber on need. It, 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 you don't have large stockpiles. Uh, Damon Goodburn's done fantastic work in showing that the timbers were usually used green. They don't have the shakes in them. Yeah, uh, his, his work on carpentry. And what was almost certainly happening when a big building project was being commissioned somebody went out to the forests that they were managing and it's, these are managed woodlands and they were marking up the trees to fell and they were deciding on the procurement chain procurement a, a really important word so mm. every time a piece of wood ends up in london it is because somebody has decided they want a piece of wood and procured it and that procurement exercise belongs at very specific dates because we have the bark on many of the piles used in foundations we have the the year of felling we know the season at which timbers were felled and when you've got over a thousand well over a thousand tree ring dates from london it, it begins to say very big and important things because those building programs are attached to, to, to major engineering projects, whether it's town planning, whether it's building a, a new amphitheater, uh, whether it's building a, a, a palace by the, by the riverside. Uh, all of those exercises mean that someone is, is, is bringing Timbers in. And the story in, in the book, that the question you asked, is about how each of those procurement exercises tells us about the politics of the time. There's a wonderful coincidence of dendro dates, tree dates, with the dates of when new governors come to take up their post as governors of the province of Britain. And they are arriving with a new agenda. It's, it's the new governor arrives, he's been given a brief, you've got to go and do X or Y or Z usually military campaigns, and to make those military campaigns work, you have to structure the logistical supply. 
and this, this is really a little bit of an unpleasant topic right now, given what's going on in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. But you you've got the fact that 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 the the campaign that was launched against Ukraine required many months of building up the supplies, organising the provisioning of it. You can't send soldiers out to campaign without the, the trucks of food and supplies behind them. And the role of London is to gather together what Rome needs to wage war, to do the, the horrible things it's doing in Britain. Um, so the new governor would arrive with a, like, right, let's sort out the peoples over there. Let's m- manage a new programme of conquest there. And those campaigns go all the way through London's early Roman history, right up until you know, Claudian invasion happens in Britain in AD 43. But they're still completing the conquest of Scotland in, into the 80s. Um, mm. and, and indeed, having completed the conquest of Scotland, they rapidly let it go and have to then do other military campaigns to reconquer bits of it or to build a wall across or whatever. And each of those different exercises is a military logistical programme that requires uh, sacks of grain to be brought off of boats in London's harbour, stored in in the warehouses here, made into bread and, and moved along. And that's the story I'm trying to tell, is about how those different campaigns tell us not just about London, not just about Roman Britain, but actually about what Roman imperial strategy was all about. I get very excited about Nerva's interest in supporting the army in, 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 in the later bit. I get very excited about Nero stopping bothering towards the end of his reign. And, and get me on Vespasian and I, I can talk for hours, you know. Um, and, and it is, you, you can read Roman imperial politics from the evidence of the bits of wood we, we find in, in, in London. And that's a very rare treat and privilege to have such dating. And then you end up with things like the Bloomberg tablets, which the Museum of London excavated for the Bloomberg mm-hmm. headquarters, where you have the documentation that goes with it. And of course, that documentation is, is again the documentation of control. It's about borrowing money to invest in things. It's about making con- contracts. It's about worrying about property, about worrying about supplies. Uh, the ox carts that came out of London were a big deal. People are talking about where they should be, how, how much they should be paying for them, who, who you know, who, who's driving them. Um, shipbuilding on, on, on the Thames. Again, a big part of that is, is your logistics of supply require the ships to, to dock to load onto those ox carts. And that, that's what these contracts are about, is the money lending that goes with that business. Um, so you pull all that together and, and archeology, span rescue archeology, span our archeology, span the commercial archeology span that's been done is, is changing our understanding of what goes on. And that's, I mean, London is lucky because it's a rich city with developers who need basements, who are prepared to pay archaeologists significant sums to deal with the problems arising. And there's a lot of good archaeology being done in the city because there's quite a lot of money in the city. And it's repeat exercises which let you put together the pieces of the jigsaw in a way that that I don't think anywhere else in the world has seen quite that intensity of research going on. I, I would argue that London is the most intensely studied archaeological site in the world. Mm, so that's what makes London so special, I think, is that in the modern day that you've got this this archaeological intensity happening. But why, why didn't you choose another amazing Roman uh, sort of town city like Colchester or Bath or something? Why, Ro- why London in the Roman world? Well, firstly, I'm a Londoner. It's yes. my place. Um, <laughs> I, and I've been interested in it 
all the way through my career. Um, but I go back to the fact that it, the quality of the archaeological documentation is second to none. People started doing archaeology in London in the 1580s. Um, that's when we have our first reports written on, 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 on burials. Say they're not brilliant archaeological reports, but they're not they're not bad actually. Yeah. And and we've got uh, you know, as longer has been spent digging Roman London than London was a Roman place, um, mm. and that's also fascinating. I mean, some of the things I do look at in the book is is the history of archaeological research in London and how that has contributed to how we do archaeology. Uh, London has been a testing ground for ideas about the whys and wherefores of method, but also theoretically as well. It's, it, it, so all of those things come together. And uh, yeah, Colchester's fascinating too, but it's, mm. it's not seen quite so much going on. But also, get back to it, London was the main entrepot. Colchester is important as a colonial city. It's important for its, its, its pre-Roman background, but it, but it doesn't have the same role that, that London does. London is the, uh, the, the focal point of Roman imperial intervention in Britain. Um, but why is that? The River Thames. The Thames oh, because the of Thames, the Thames. The Thames. The Thames, the Thames. Right. Going back to what I was saying about this logistical supply for military mm. campaigns, you bring your shipping up the river the tides carry the shipping up, which is a great asset because you're not having to rely on wind or, or pulling up. The tide itself will, will draw uh, traffic upriver um, and, and help it leave as well. So tidal Thames is, is an arterial route into uh, inland Britain. Um, but it only becomes that when Rome starts its programme of conquest. Mm. Pre-Rome, the Thames is a, is a barrier. The, the people of Colchester are occasionally probably at war with the people of Silchester, and, and there, there are different polities, different communities, and the, and the river becomes more easily seen as a barrier to movement than, than, than as an arterial route. And, and, and it's Rome that can change that, and it does that because of the Thames, but it also does that because it can stick a bridge over the Thames. Mm. And the bridging of the Thames makes the, the port on the north bank of the river absolutely the heart of everything. And that's, that's what London has carried on doing. When Britain, or sometimes just England, is a unitary state, London is the sensible place to park a capital city. But mm. when it's not a unitary state, it isn't. So, you know, in the Dark Ages, in the, in the Saxon period, London becomes peripheral again for a while because it's not, it's not needed. And London is the... I love London, but it's the place from which Britain is both ruled and exploited. And it's mm. not always doing great things it sometimes is but it, it it it's a it's a place for the domination of britain and sometimes to, to to manage britain in a way that lets britain do things that otherwise it couldn't do but there's an interesting balance to be struck between ruling for the good and ruling for the for those who enjoy it and have the privilege of being at the heart of it so london like rome is not always altogether 100 percent good but that's not what we're in the business of doing as archaeologists is, mm -hmm. is, is, is voting for good or bad. We're just trying right. to, to pick out the stories and, yeah. and see what we can see. For sure. And, and sorry, going back, you were talking about, and that's another very exciting thing about method in London, because London's archaeology, being rescue archaeology or development-led archaeology, has been very responsive. People dig because somebody's going to build a building there, not because they start with an a priori theory. That, and, and so it makes rescue archaeology a little bit... 
it seems atheoretical to people who stand outside of what we do because we're just happily lucking out and finding these things because <laughs> a, a developer's letting us. And that's not really true. What we're doing is what used to be called, it's, it's a form of inductive reasoning. We're, we're piecing together evidence that does let us think bigger things and understand bigger things, but it is not following uh, Karl Popper's hypothetical deductive uh, reasoning. This is, this is more old fashioned inductive reasoning. I always compare what we do to being a little bit like the, the, the Sherlock Holmes thing. We're not in the business of, of having an a priori idea of what we're witnessing. We're looking for the clues that we can find that are in front of us and then using those to piece together a story. So, and we, we find clues not because we started out with a, an argument. And I did find that in, in the book I wrote and working on Roman London, I did find that my a priori ideas weren't what I ended up writing about at all. I followed the threads of, of each piece of wood with a date on it. <laughs> I'd go, why did they fell that tree in that year? And that was what I started with, that clue of, but why that year? Why not two years later? Why not? Why at all? You know, why, and that's uh, why do you want to build the port at the stages you do? Also, why do you let things fall apart when they fall apart? The great thing with having lots and lots of clues of dates is there are gaps and you start to say well those gaps also begin to mean things because why weren't they felling timbers in those years why weren't they building new things mm -hmm. in those years you get led to, to views from the data uh, which is a very old-fashioned way of doing things but i think is still what we in in commercial and development-led archaeology do and i would like to think that this book and the sorts of things that you and, and your excellent colleagues in, in the ASE team, which of course I'm terribly proud of, <laughs> I, I'd like to think that that is what all of us are doing, is finding things that require answers. Mm, pulling on threads, yeah. following evidence. Yeah. yeah. And being surprised by it, being surprised by it. Yeah, definitely. I was going to ask you a question about commercial archaeology and its contribution, but... Uh... We've kind, of, we've kind of covered it a little bit, but I kind of want to lead you into talking more about commercial archaeology and, and its contribution in general to, to Roman archaeology, but also to the archaeological and heritage sector as a whole. First up, I've always <laughs> preferred the word development-led archaeology Indeed. to commercial archaeology. Um, we respond to the pressures of the world around us needing to change. Mm. And... It does need to change. People do need to build underground railways. People do need to build sewage farms. People need new houses. And, and those are positive things. I mean, even sewage farms are positive things. Mm. If we didn't have them, we'd be in trouble. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so we are enabling change. And, and development-led archaeology is part of ensuring that as things change, we're, we're, we're getting the best of, of, of what was there. Sometimes what we're studying tells us that things are too important to, to destroy, to remove or whatever. And conservation is sometimes the proper end point and goal. And you then develop in a slightly different way. You, you, you identify assets and resources that we keep for posterity because they, they really are worth keeping. Other times, 
in particular in the city of London, you decide, look, we, we can dig this up. And, and yes, those mosaics will look just as good in a museum as they will in the ground. Um, uh, and we, we use the resource in a different way. And I think that that's what's terribly exciting about what we do as in, in development-led archaeology is we are enabling change. We're finding the best of the past to use with the present and, and, and learning and, and discovering in a way that, 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 that developments will enable. Development-led archaeology is why we look at, at, at cities. You would not have any chance of putting together a research programme to study Roman London without developers creating building mm. sites that you can investigate. And, and that is an opportunity. It is also a threat. And the balancing of those is an exciting part of our job of, of when, when do we want to pull out an extra timber from the ground for an extra dendro date, or when should that timber stay there because it's propping something up that will fall over if you take it away. And, and there are... Uh, and uh, so those strategic choices are our daily uh, job and everything we do whether it's the uh, impact assessments to start with where it's the evaluations uh, whether it's the full mitigation strategies is tied to that process and development is both a necessary thing i mean there are some developments which people don't want and and not all development is good um, and archaeology sometimes can be part of the argument as to why development shouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. But it is it is to recognise that change is inevitable, so we should be part of that process. And, and it becomes commercial simply because the people putting the money in are the developers. Uh, it's proper, they're the ones who are changing the landscape, it's proper, they should, should think about it. Um, but because they're putting the funding in, it means that we receive those funds, and as people receive those funds, we've got to make it clear that there's a proper business case for it, that mm -hmm. we're not simply asking for money we don't need. Um, we need to be held to account, and the commercial process does hold us to account. Um, and it also involves different stakeholders and different communities of interest. There is the public interest being protected by the curatorial archaeologists, the county archaeologists, the people who work in museums. There is the uh, developer's interest being protected by consultants who specialise in working out how to, to manage change in the landscape, the uh, RPS consulting and the, and the others out there. Um, and then there are people like ourselves who work in universities who try and marry those threads of, of what we're doing to learning, knowledge gain, teaching, outreach. And, and that's, again, I, I, it's, a, it's a lovely job to be in. I, I, I wish we could spend a little bit less time worrying about money, which is mm. sadly necessary. But if we weren't worrying about money, we wouldn't be doing our job well. You know, yeah, so. I suppose you're right. <laughs> so what's next for the study of Roman London? in your opinion like is it is it pull out every piece of wood possible from from roman archaeological uh, sites and get a dendro date on them <laughs> there's a bit of me that would but it's not really where the future lies what i've tried to do in in this book is draw together the threads of what's gone on so far and create a model a model both saying how the landscape worked, how its economy worked, and looking at the political history that, that engendered change and, and, and seeing the, the rise and eventually failure and fall of the city. Um, the, this is therefore a narrative, it's a story. And that's good because that's what I like writing. Mm. But most of, of what I'm writing about it, it generates other materials and other resources which I can't touch on in this book because life is too short and it's not my specialist skills. We have so many 
quantified assemblages of pottery, of animal bone, of botanical materials, of small finds, of coins. And that is sitting in uh, archives in the Museum of London. And we've only touched the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. We've only looked at uh, a small proportion of the stories that we can learn from the material. And that's where we can take the archaeological research away from my very top-down accounts. I'm all about the systems, the structures. I talk about emperors all the time. The, the things we find in rubbish pits mm -hmm. tells us about how individuals are responding to that world. There are the different patterns of diet, of, of uh, table manners. There are the different ideas that underpin things that we can read from material culture and the range of study still to be undertaken on that material. And the great thing about that is you don't actually need development to carry on at a cracking right. pace because we've already got those bags of pot that have been washed and bagged that have sometimes been quantified. But the statistical analysis, the, 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 the reading of the stories from these things, the working out which assemblages to look at, and there are millions of assemblages. Mm -hmm. And what I've done, I hope, is created uh, the narrative into which you can then talk about looking not at, at Roman London as Roman London, because, of course... It, it, it's got 400 years of existing. You can talk about what's happening in the early Flavian period. You can talk about what's happening in the third century. You can start saying, well, if the changes in London in the third century are a consequence of plague or piracy, that's going to change how people live. We know that now. Epidemics change patterns of life. So mm -hmm. rather than starting out by simply saying we're looking at Roman London, we should be arguing about are we seeing changes in how people represented themselves, how they understood the afterlife in burial practice because of an epidemic that we now can see has some impact on London at that particular point in time. So that so the story I've written about wars and plagues and uh, fires and disasters, that story then gives us the chance to, to ask these other questions about how how it mattered to people. And that then comes back to agency, as, as, as people would describe it in, in the theoretical literature. And I don't really deal with agency. I'm all structure. And that's... Mm -hmm. It, it goes with the grain of what I enjoy doing, mm. but it is also a shame. We've got so much more to be done uh, in, in understanding how people's lives lived. And there we can go into all sorts of issues as the impact of slavery on London. We can look at how power dynamics play out in households um, and, and that comes into gender archaeology and all the rest of it. And there are so many archaeologies that can be worked at and, and explored through the material culture of London. And in some cases, more digging will add to that picture. But I think we've already got quite enough, really. It's about, it's about working out the big questions to ask of this amazing resource. And of course, taking that out of London as well. Mm. With London, you can start to write a better narrative because we've got more tree ring dates out of London elsewhere. But you can then start to plug into what does that tell us about what people are doing elsewhere in the landscape of both Britain and other parts of the Roman world. The stories we can tell about how uh, epidemics may have impacted in the, in the second and third centuries uh, are stories that people haven't been able to, 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 to explore elsewhere because they haven't got the quality of dating. But perhaps we can create models that can be tested elsewhere. Are other cities responding to change in the same way? And, uh, you know, and, and on it goes. That there it, this, is, this is the start of, of, of so much. You know. Yeah. So, like, are other cities with, with um, dendrochronological sequences showing those same instances of construction and dis destruction? I, uh, 
I wish I knew is the answer. <laughs> I do know that a lot of very good work is being done uh, along the Rhine frontier where we also have good uh, uh, dendro dating. There's a lot of good work being done, obviously, on the wall as well, Hadrian's Wall, where we're getting quite good uh, chronological precision to things. So there are these other landscapes going on. I don't know, however, of many cities with quite the same weight of evidence. Um, I, I am afraid I'm not as well up on, on the latest coming out of places like Trier and Cologne, which are the, the obvious places to look to. Mm. Of course, one of the advantages of London is it's a lot of timber used here. We don't have good building stone. Um, so things continue being built in timber when elsewhere masonry construction oh, right. is more widely used. That's Also, we have the, the Thames required the timbers to build the waterfronts it also helped create the very waterlogged anaerobic conditions which have preserved those timbers absolutely and the scale of london london was quite a large city i mean not not big by rome's standards but big by provincial standards is thirty thousand odd people living here at its peak probably a bit more than that um and that that engenders a lot of building. So our dendro is more abundant, better preserved uh, than in most other places in the Roman world. So it will always be a bit of a, uh, a leading mm. site for the site of these things. But as I say, there are things going on elsewhere that, that, that I'm, I'm sure will, will be telling their counter-narratives, their, mm. their different stories. And of course, the politics of the different frontier regions of the empire are different because troops get moved from one campaign to another so what what is a, a peak here is is it going to be a decline somewhere else because they've moved the troops here from there you know sort of thing you know not always yes. good but but you know what i mean there's a there's a there's a narrative that is different according to these different locations so but if we tell the stories from uh, our uh, it's the rippling out you start with the excavation site, you then try and tell the story of London, you then look to what that tells about what's going on in Britain, you then look at the Roman Empire, and all of those levels of analysis are needed. So, yeah. Definitely. If uh, people's interest has been piqued by, by what you've been saying, where can they find your lovely new book? <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's um, uh, Oxford University Press. It, 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 this is very much a personal book, but it is also about what we do as archaeologists in the development-led sector. And so I am, you know, I'm, I'm not promoting this just for me, of course no. I am, but <laughs> I'm also promoting it for what Archaeology Southeast does and what the Museum of London does, what Cotswold Archaeology does, what Pre-Construct Archaeology does, what all of the good people out there are doing. And again, one of the really fun things about writing this book is, of course, there is the work of all of those different teams and units involved in this. It isn't just the story of one organisation, it is how we collectively, in our profession, are making a real difference and that's a privilege to be able to write absolutely well, thank you Don for that absolutely amazing uh, new knowledge for me about Roman London and and of course development led archaeology's impact and input into that story thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and uh, brilliant Look forward to hearing more more Roman archaeology in the future. Well, if you invite me back, we'll have another chat about other exciting... The social history of London's archaeology is also great. Definitely, yeah. Another time. Thank you very much. Bye. All right, bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed that episode of Archaeology Southeast Digs Deeper. You can find more information about the episode in the show notes or on our website at ucl.ac.uk forward slash archaeology dash south dash east forward slash podcast for more archaeology content follow us on twitter at arc southeast 
and Facebook and Instagram at Archaeology Southeast. Thanks for listening.